So we are starting this new uh, sermon series that we've entitled Set Free to Live Free. I'm going to spend eight Sundays looking at this Old Testament book of Exodus. Now the word Exodus has a meaning, if you don't know, the Greek word Exodus literally means a way out. And what we're going to see over these eight Sundays is the way God miraculously provides for his people a way out of slavery and oppression in Egypt, a way out of terrible suffering and groaning that they are going through, um, a way out of their own sin and the consequences of it, and marvelously bring them into freedom, bring them into the very relationship with God that they were made for. Hence the title, Set Free um, to Live Free. But as we come to this book, this Old Testament book, please don't think that this is sort of a historical story merely about the Israelites three and a half thousand years ago. It is a true story back then. But this book continues to speak very powerfully into our lives today, be it at the macro level and the human oppression today, the modern slavery today, sex trafficking today, global poverty today. People are groaning, people are crying out for a way out from these things. Imagine if there was a final, ultimate way out. And it's not just at the macro level that this book speaks today. Most of us will be coming to church today looking for, seeking, perhaps crying out, groaning for a way out for some of the issues, circumstances you are facing. Some of us are entrapped in negative patterns of thought, addicted to negative patterns of behavior. Some of us feel trapped in our sin. Some of us are feeling the effects of a fallen world, sickness, illness, death, hospital visits, anxieties, insecurities. We are crying out for a way out of these things. And that is what the book of Exodus is about. And as we meet this God of this way out, so we meet and can meet the same God who eats offers each and every one of us just the way out we need for our lives today. So that introduces us to the book of Exodus. Come with me now to chapters 1 to 4. Let's meet this God now. And the first thing for us to see, you'll see the point come up on the screen, is this is a God who is always there. A God who is always there. And we're going to pick up the story in chapter 2. Obviously, we can't address all of chapters 1 to 4, um, in detail, but we'll try and cover as much as possible. The God who is always there, chapter 2, and I'm going to read from verse 23. We're on page 59. During that long period, that is the long period when Moses fled from Pharaoh, went to live in Midian, during that long period, the king of Egypt died. Now, this is the king, we are told in chapter 1, um, didn't care much for Joseph, and this was a king who was pretty paranoid about the growth of the Israelites and they're really numerous in numbers and he feared that they would overthrow him. And so he enslaved them and they're having this terrible oppression, terrible slavery. He gets so paranoid, he even threatens and tries to kill all of the newborn boys. Terrible suffering, terrible This is what this means during the period the king of Egypt died. Listen then, the Israelites groaned in their slavery and cried out, and their cry for help because of their slavery went up to God. God heard their groaning, and he remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob. So God looked on the Israelites and was concerned about them. 
One of the things that makes suffering, if you are particularly suffering now, you have suffered quite deeply in life, is that when you are going through these things, you can feel that God is not there, that maybe God has abandoned you in your battle with sin. I mean, does he not see what I am going through? Does he not hear the prayers that I am crying out to him in this suffering? Does he not care what I am going through? They can feel at times that God is not there, that he's abandoned us. Do you see those four verbs in verses 23 and 24 that give a great assurance to us today? God heard, God remembered, God looked, God was concerned. It may feel at times that he is distant. It may feel at times that he is not there. But these verses reassure us that God is always there for his people. Every cry, every prayer he hears, every tear he sees. There is nothing which the Lord does not see. And he doesn't just see what we're going through sort of from afar with some sort of emotional detachment. Oh yes, I see you're sad. Now why is that? No, he sees and he's concerned. He sees and he moves towards us with great compassion. And we can be sure of that because of that little phrase there, God remembered his covenant. Now, you don't have to turn with me now, but back in Genesis 17:7, this is what this reference um, refers to, if you want the reference later. This is what this covenant with Abraham means. Let me just read it out to you. Genesis 17, verse 7. God speaking to Abraham. I will establish my covenant as an everlasting covenant that is completely unbreakable between me and you and your descendants after you for the generations to come the generations of Isaac and Jacob and down to where we are here. Promise to be your God and the God of your descendants after you. I promise to be your God in an everlasting covenant. Now, if God has promised to be your God, to be with you, to see what you're going through, to hear your groanings, to be, if he has promised that, how can he ever not be with you? How can he ever not be your God? The fact that God sees, the fact that God hears, the fact that God moves here to his people is because he has always promised to do that. You can be absolutely sure, no matter how you're feeling about the situation, if you are trusting in him, he's never abandoned you. He is not distant, he is not remote, he is not cold to what you are going through. He is with you. He gets it. He understands. And it's into that context that God now appears to Moses. To say, look, I am here. I am with you, with your people. And he appears in a burning bush of all things. Let's think about this for a moment. A burning bush, fire. Symbolic in the Bible of God's holiness. And we know it must reference to that because God says, take off your sandals for the place where you're standing is holy ground. Now, God's holiness is God's white-hot moral purity. God's perfection, God's hatred of all evil and all that is wrong. The reason why God can't approach us when we are sinful humanity is it often doesn't turn out very well for people who see God or come too close to him. The fascinating thing here is that God does not say, hang on, Moses, you're coming a bit too close, just hang back, as we're going to see later on in Exodus when he comes on the mountain and the people can't come too close. No, he says, you're already on holy ground. That's why you've got to take your sandals off. God, who is incredibly holy and other, 
separated because of us, but he's coming close to be there, to be with them. He sees, he hears, he cares, he's concerned. Never think that God is distant. Never think that God isn't there. He is always there. Now, I doubt any of us here have um, witnessed a burning bush, but um, if you have, tell me afterwards. I'll be interested to, to hear. We have something so much better living now in the 21st century. Later on in the Bible story, now there's not a burning bush, there is the word made flesh. God himself, born into this world and made his dwelling amongst us. God come to be with us. And there's a fascinating verse later on in the Bible in Hebrews chapter 4, saying about, saying about Jesus, but we do not have a high priest who is unable to feel sympathy for our weaknesses, but we have one who has been tempted in every way, just as we are, yet he did not sin. Jesus came to earth. He suffered with us. He suffered for us on a cross. You may think at times people don't understand what you're going through. They just don't get it. That is never the case with Jesus Christ. He has been tempted in every way. He can sympathize with your weaknesses. He understands, he gets it, yet he was without sin. He can help you with it. He sees. He hears. He remembers his covenant. Ultimately in Christ, he cares. But the second thing to see from these opening chapters of Exodus is not just that God is sympathetic and God cares. He's actually going to do something about it. The God of the Bible, the God of Exodus, is a God who will act. Look, look at verses um, 7 to 10 now of chapter 3. As God tells Moses what he's going to do uh, for his people. The Lord said, I have indeed seen the misery of my people in Egypt. I have heard them crying out because of their slave drivers. And I am concerned about their suffering. Again, seen, heard, concerned. So, verse 8, I have come down to rescue them from the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them up out of that land into a good and spacious land, a land flowing with milk and honey. I promise to act. I promise to rescue. In case Moses doesn't get it, he reiterates it again in verse 9 and verse 10. Now the cry of the Israelites have reached me, and I've seen the way the Egyptians are oppressing them. So now go, I'm sending you to Pharaoh to bring my people, the Israelites, out of um, Egypt. Do you see? A God is not just there, not just sees, cares, sympathizes. A God who can do something about it. A God who will act. A God who will come down to rescue his people, bring them away out of Egypt. Now, what I want us to see at this point is this is not the first time that God has promised to act in this way and promised to rescue his people. I want us to actually come back with me this time. Keep a finger in Exodus 3. Come back with me to Genesis 15. This is page 16. A really important moment in the Bible story. This is 600 years earlier. This is God speaking to Abraham. Genesis 15, on page 16. I'm going to read verse 12. Listen carefully to what God says to Abraham here. Page 16. Genesis 15, verse 12. As the sun was setting, 
Abraham fell into a deep sleep, and a thick and dreadful darkness came over him. Then the Lord said to him, Know for certain that for 400 years your descendants will be strangers in a country not their own, and that they will be enslaved and ill-treated there. But I will punish the nation they serve as slaves, and afterwards they will come out with great possessions. 600 years earlier, do you see, God predicted that this would happen. That his people would end up in slavery in Egypt, but that an exodus would come. Why is this important? Because we must not think of the exodus as God's plan B. He makes this wonderful promise to be their God, to be always with them, see, hear, be concerned for them. Oh, whoops, you're now in slavery. How did that happen? Silly me. Better do something about it. No, God, it's not as if God could get blindsided once, he could get blindsided again. We wouldn't trust him. God never gets blindsided. He is completely in control of what is going on here. Now, you might wonder why God let something like this happen. But here is an absolute promise that whatever's happening in our lives for the Israelites back then, it will come to an end. He sees everything. He's in control of everything. Nothing can stop him. When God promises to act, to rescue, he will. Notice also the way God describes himself in verse 6, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob. God has a track record when it comes to acting for his people. The God of Abraham. He made a promise that Abraham and Sarah would have a child. They were old in years. They had to wait 25 years. But God was faithful. He acted. He delivered on his promises. The God of Isaac. 40 years old he was before he met Rebecca and could get married. They were prayerless. They, they were childless. They prayed. God acted. He was faithful. And Jacob was born. The God of the Bible is a God who always keeps his promises, always delivers on his promises, never fails, always comes through. He is promising his people a way out is definitely coming. And so it is for us today if we are followers of Jesus Christ. There is a wonderful picture that we're given at the end of the Bible, God making a promise there. Uh, John, in an island on Patmos, gets this vision. Then I saw a new heavens and a new earth. For the first heavens and the first earth had passed away. God's dwelling place is now among the people and he will dwell with them. They'll be his people and God himself will be with them and be their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There'll be no more death, no more mourning, no more crying, no more pain. For the old order of things has passed away. A promise of an ultimate way out for all of us. And you may think, well, wishful thinking. Well, no more wishful thinking for God's people back then. And yet we have a much better track record even than they had. Not just the God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. The God of David, the God of the prophets. Ultimately the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. God has come to earth. In the person of Jesus, he has died on a cross. He has paid the penalty of sin. He has broken the power of sin in our lives. He has conquered death and risen from the dead. He is alive and he is coming back. He has promised to one day bring in a world free from all oppression, all slavery, all poverty, all misery. It will be gone. Every tear wiped away. This is a God you can trust. Because he never fails to deliver 
on his promises. I hope we can see the great hope there is for the gospel, whatever we are facing uh, right now. If it is the guilt of sin, the freedom there is in Jesus Christ, if it is an addiction to something, the power to break free in him, a way out for all those negative patterns of thought and behavior, for all that is wrong in this world to one day put right. Which, by the way, doesn't mean we continue to fight for global poverty, campaign against sex traffic. Of course not. God, Jesus tells us to pray for his kingdom to come on earth as in heaven. But what this is promising is that one day, all of this terrible thing is going on in this world and our lives will one day completely all be eradicated. Because the God of Exodus, the God of the Bible, is a God who always acts. He definitely will. And the final thing to see from these opening chapters is actually the way God does act and the means he uses might not be what we expect because actually God uses weak means to achieve his purposes. And we see this in the way he uses at Moses. Um, here, did you notice a lot of the excuses, um, the litany of objections um, that Moses comes up with? He's just said in verse 10, I'm sending you to Pharaoh to bring my people, the Israelites, out Maybe Moses would say, yes, Lord, that's great, absolutely. What do you want me to do? What a privilege to be used by you. Instead we get, in verse 11, who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the Israelites out of Egypt? Oh, no, not me. You can't use me. And God says, look, I will be with you. God can use anybody. But, verse 13, Moses says again, suppose I go to the Israelites and say to them, the God of your fathers has sent me to you, and they ask me, what is his name? Then what shall I tell them? He's worried about what's going to happen. He doesn't have all the answers. Of course, God is with him, and he has all the answers, and so he says, look, I am who I am. Say to the Israelites, I'm the Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, of Isaac, the God of Jacob. I think this answers more for Moses than it is for Pharaoh. Look, I'm with you. Don't you get that? I've always been with my people acting for them. I'm with you now. Stop worrying. Chapter 4, verse 1. What if they do not believe me or don't listen to me and say the Lord did not appear to you? What if it doesn't work? What if I look stupid? Chapter 4, verse 10. Pardon your servant, Lord. I have never been eloquent, neither in the past nor since you have spoken to your servant. I'm slow of speech and tongue. All these excuses. I'm not good enough. I'm not qualified enough. Chapter 4, verse 13. But Moses said, pardon your servant, Lord. Please send someone else. Moses here, so frail, so weak, so fearful, so anxious, thinking he's not good enough, he's not able enough, he's not qualified enough. But that's exactly the point. You don't have to be any of those things for the God to use you. The Lord loves to use the weak to achieve and to fulfill his purposes. Do you know how old Moses is here? He is 80 years old. He is somewhat past his prime. As if you're 80 here, maybe you're not, maybe you're still going strong, I don't know. But I mean, my goodness, Moses, earlier on in chapters one and two, why did God not use Moses when he was in his physical prime, at the height of his powers? Moses' life, he ended up growing up as a prince of Egypt 
He was so wise. He was so powerful. Imagine the political influence he could have wielded to get his people out. We might think that's how it would normally play out. If you've seen the Hollywood film, Exodus, Gods and Kings, that's how Hollywood plays it out. Christian Bale playing Moses, handsome, muscular, a warrior with sword in hand in the army, using his human skill and human ingenuity, human power to rescue his people. Moses is the great hero when Hollywood spins it, not in the biblical story. Moses is a failure. Moses is weak. Moses is old. Should have had Sean Connery playing it. Moses tried, by the way, to get his people out. We don't have time to go in detail, but in the second half of chapter two, did you ever hear that? When he kills this Egyptian, because this Egyptian was beating up his fellow Israelites. Acts chapter seven tells us Moses thinks this is the moment that people are going to rise up with him to get to escape from Egypt. No, they reject him. Reject Moses. Pharaoh tries to kill him. And Moses flees to Midian and ends up being a shepherd for 40 years. Complete failure. He is not the hero of the story. God is the hero of the story. God is the one who uses a weak, frail person like Moses to bring in his purposes. The evangelist Dwight Moody once said, Moses spent 40 years thinking he was somebody Then he spent 40 years on the backside of the desert realizing he was nobody. Finally, he spent the last 40 years of his life learning what God can do with a nobody. Because God loves to use the weak, weak means to accomplish his purposes. And the ultimate example of that in the Bible story is the cross. Where Jesus didn't think of himself as a somebody, he was the somebody. And yet Jesus chose to become a nobody for you and me. Jesus was always at the height of his powers. And yet, incredibly, marvelously, he chose to lay down all those powers as he was hung up on a cross, a death he did not deserve. Let them nail, drive those nails through his hands and his feet. As Jesus bore our sin, as Jesus bore our weakness, as God became weak for us so that we could become strong in him. So if we're looking to him now, we can know for certain that God can use us, can provide the way out in our lives that we need right now. God is the hero of our lives, not us, not anybody else. Look to him, not yourself. I said at the start, some of us here, negative patterns of thought, addicted patterns of behavior. You may feel very weak. You may feel you don't have the answers. You don't have the ability You can't do it. You're at your wit's end. What a wonderful place to be. Because God loves to use the weak. Because he is the hero. Not you, not me, not anybody else. And so whatever you are facing right now, whatever way out you need, there is hope in the gospel. That way out could come right now. If it's guilt over sin, there can be freedom straight away. If it's an addiction, there can be the breaking of that power. For some, that way out will have to wait until Jesus returns. When only then will there be no more suffering, no more sickness, no more tears, no more death. 
But whatever it is, know for certain that the way out you need, I need, we all need, is definitely coming. Because the God of this Bible is the God who is always there, who will always act, and will work through weak people like us. Let me pray that for us now. Let me pray. Father God, thank you so much for these opening chapters of Exodus when we're seeing just the richness of your character, the way you see, hear, remember, are concerned for your people and not just sympathize but act, promise to rescue, provide a way out and my goodness, the means you use, weak means, weak like Moses but we know ultimately in Jesus Christ we have that way out for us. I pray, Father God, that you would help us to acknowledge our weaknesses if we come in here feeling strong. But for those of us who do recognize our weaknesses, we would look to you and see great power in the gospel, great hope for the way out. You promise each and every one of us that we may cling to you, look to you, not to ourselves, and rejoice in all that you are and have done for us. And we ask it for Jesus' sake. Amen.